All right, let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 8 and looking at uh, the entire Psalm, Psalm 8. So you can open your Bible or you can uh, look at our uh, bulletin online or follow along on the slide. And I will go ahead and read this for us, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together and dive into God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray you give us wisdom now to hear it, to receive it from the bottom of our hearts, and the wisdom to walk away with something uh, to put into action so that, Lord, we would be wise in living in faith, uh, faith that is active and faith that is alive. So, Lord, teach us, help us, guide us, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Uh, We're continuing in our series, uh, Worldview, and we've looked at four topics so far, right? Uh, scripture, Christ, faith, and grace. Now, here's a question. Uh, what does the Bible say is the ultimate purpose for which God gave us the scriptures, which reveals Christ, and through him gives us faith to trust in his unmerited grace? What is the purpose of all this? And the answer can't simply be, uh, so, so you and I would get to heaven. Because the question is, what is he getting us into heaven for? That's the question. You know how little kids can ask you like an infinite number of why questions and drive you crazy? <laughs> and my kids have certainly done that. And, and we can certainly do something like that with God. Uh, God, why, why, did you give it, why did you create anything? Why did you allow this or that? Uh, why did you allow your son to die? What? Why does he save, and why is he coming back? Why, why, why? But did you know that the Bible actually does bring us to a final stop on this train of thought? Uh, my sort of final stop for my kids could be, because I said so, right? So stop arguing. But the Bible gives us something much, I think, more satisfying, at least intellectually, than because God says so. Um, and the answer is glory. The answer is soli deo gloria, which is a Latin phrase for, for the glory of God alone. For the glory of God alone. It's all for the sake of the recognition of the glorious honor of God's name. That's the final why. It's the end to all why questions. It's all for the glory of God alone. Now, the natural um, objection uh, that I think anyone can raise at this point is, doesn't that make God a little 
egotistical, right? It's all about me. <laughs> uh, doesn't that make turn, turn God into sort of this glory junkie, as it were? Uh, this deity who wants all the attention for himself, ultimately. Now, let me give you two short answers to that before we dive more into our text. And what I just want to do is just kind of help you put away that distracting question just for now so we can focus on the text. Um, there is, first of all, this irony in this objection, and that is the one objecting to all of this ultimately being about the glory of one being is himself making this all about the glory of one being, himself. Uh, the trouble we have with the glory of God alone is, then where's mine? Where's my glory? Doesn't that demean my status? And that's not true. But I'm going to just show you that assumption first, and then here's, here's why it's not true. Um, and I'll try to explain this through an illustration. To this day, one of the most incredible live musical performances, and, and, and I haven't been to that many. Those are expensive. Um, but I've actually made it to a live Yo-Yo Ma uh, performance. It was absolutely the best thing I've ever seen, like, live, musically speaking. Um, and, and there was this, just throughout the whole evening, this sense of um, reverence and just silence in awe of what he was doing on stage. Um, and when he was done, everyone got up and just applauded for a good five minutes because we want more, right, for the encore performance. Now, what if in that moment, what if just in the middle of the concert, uh, a man were to stand up and say, hey, what is up with you getting all the glory and all the attention? Why don't I go on stage and fiddle around a little bit with your cello? Just, just so you won't be so egotistical and be so selfish in drawing all the attention to yourself. There are thousands of other people in this room. Why is one person getting all the, of the attention? If that were to happen, what would happen to him, <laughs> that man? Uh, he'll get thrown out immediately. Why? Because what he's utterly failing to realize is that it is the joy of the thousands of people in that room to give all the attention and all the glory to one person on stage. It is their joy. What he's failing to realize is the joy of just beholding Yo-Yo Ma playing on the stage and the absolute silence of the audience. The absolute reverence and silence coming from the audience. See, that's... And I just described to you a human being's relationship to other human beings. How much more right, should we be able to behold the glory of our Creator? and enjoy him, behold him, in reverence and in silence. What I want to show you from our passage today is, first, um, this is how we're wired. We're wired to appreciate glory. And at the same time, we struggle against God's glory. We, we've gone a little haywire for glory. And lastly, Christ invites us back into God's glory. He rewires us for glory. So we're hardwired for glory, 
we've gone haywire for glory, and yet Christ rewires us for glory, these three. All right, so first, we were hardwired for God's glory. What do I mean by that? Take a look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Okay, so the first thing here I want you to notice about the nature of glory is it is universal. It's all over the earth. And what that means is glory, whatever it is, is prevalent. It's so prevalent in our world and obvious to our existence as everything else that covers all the earth, like oxygen, the law of gravity. That means this is going to be a natural part of our daily experience, glory. It's all over all the earth. The same point is made again in verse 5. Yet you have made him, that's humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And here we see some additional information that the way in which glory and honor are made prevalent down here on earth is through the reflection of God's glory and honor in you and me. We've been crowned with glory and honor. Humanity has been crowned with glory and honor. We are reflections of God's glory and honor. And it's, it's actually kind of fascinating if you uh, consider just how we as humanity pretty much universally, intuitively understand, we really do understand this very ancient biblical Hebrew concept of, of hold, which is glory, or in the Greek, doxa, from which we get the word doxology. We really don't live life as if we're unfamiliar with glory. Because we, we don't live life as if it is purely physical, biological, chemical, and material, right? Things that are exhaustively kind of explained through scientific means. We really live life as though it ought to be more than what is scientifically exhaustible. We live life as though there's glory, there's honor, and there's meaning. And if I were to ask you to tell me which of the elements and the table of elements come together to form glory, I think you have a hard time telling me that. It's not empirical. It's not tangible. It's all spiritual, and yet it's part of our everyday lives. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, let me just start with this general point. If, nat if nature really is all there is, God doesn't exist, nature is all there is, and we're, noth <laughs> we're nothing but relatively more evolved primates, in a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of Darwinian jungle, then what are we really, precisely speaking, technically speaking? We're nothing more than animals. We're just, we're just more highly evolved animals. We're better at propagating our species, but at the end of the day, we're just animals. Well, here's a question. Can I therefore treat you like one? Can I treat you like an animal? I think my first grader would know the answer to that, and it's an absolute no. Out of the mouth of babies and infants would come an, a loud, resounding no to that question. Uh, do you remember the movie Matilda? How many of you have seen Matilda? No, but great. Uh, do you remember the carrot scene? No, you can't remember the carrot because you haven't seen it. There, there's a scene where Matilda's brother, who's a bully, he flicks, he uses a spoon to flick a carrot at Matilda on her way out the door. Terrible thing to do. 
But what Matilda does is she uses her magical power to make the carrot turn around and fly back towards her brother and straight into his mouth. And he, he almost like chokes on it and dies almost, but he coughs it back out. But as his, he is coughing, his father, you can hear his father in the background saying, Chew your food. You're an animal. And I remember watching that as a, as a schoolboy, as a little kid, thinking, what a terribly mean thing to say. What a terribly dehumanizing thing. I didn't use the word dehumanizing, but you're not supposed to use that word on a human being, calling them an animal. Something told me, even as a child, deep down inside, even a bully like Matilda's brother doesn't deserve to be called an animal. Somehow he's endowed with more than that, more glory and honor. Here's another example. If, if nature really is all there is and we're merely a conglomerate of atoms and chemicals and in this naturalistic universe just busying ourselves, propagating our species, why do we not sound more like that, like that's our priority when we enter into relationships, especially romantic relationships? Now, for those of you sisters who are single and you, you believe one day maybe God will call you to, to be married, if a man were to go on one knee to propose to you and the words that followed were, hey, girl. I'm throwing back to the, the Ryan Gosling, hey, girl memes from back in the day. I don't know if you remember those. Hey, girl, let's propagate our species. You seem very advantageous to my survival. Let's get Darwinian together, right? <laughs> Do you think you would say yes to that, just head over heels, fall in love with that, even if it was Ryan Gosling saying that to you? I, I hope you would say no, right? I hope you're, you would have the good sense to run for the hills. We laugh at the silly example, but really, what's so wrong about that? in a purely naturalistic, materialistic, Darwinian world. See, this can only be repulsive to us if we actually live in a world that is so much more than what is visible, what is seen, and what is testable in the lab, but in a world in which there are image bearers of God reflecting the glory and honor and majesty of their maker, then this makes sense. It makes sense why we function this way. It makes sense of our day-to-day -day experience in all of the earth. It's because we're hardwired for glory. We can't live without glory and honor. Sure, we want to live and survive, but we know we're living and surviving for something more than living and surviving. It's a means to a greater end. We want to live so we can love. We want to live so we can be loved. And that's why we, we sing about love and write poems about love, right? Have you thought about that? Just how, wait, what is the practical benefit of like just a Shakespearean sonnet? How, how, why are there entire graduate school programs built around Shakespearean sonnets? Why do we spend so much money, time, energy, intellect on poetry about love? And here's maybe even what's crazier. Why do we go beyond wanting to recognize and seeing love to 
wanting to pass into it and experiencing it and embracing it ourselves. We don't just listen to love's music. We, we want to dance to it. We want to enter into it ourselves. Why is that? And the only rational why there is to this is because you are crowned with glory and honor. Because your maker is love. See, the psalmist is saying there is a way in which we can rationally hold to this worldview where glory and honor are covering all the earth. And it's a reflection of the glory and honor in you. I think you and I are the strongest evidence that God exists. You and I are the strongest evidence that we were made for more than the physical, that we have souls. We're hardwired for glory, and we prove it every day. Okay, that's the first point. Here's the second point. We also struggle with glory. We struggle against God's glory. And another way to say that is we go haywire for glory. Verse 2 says this, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. John Calvin, he commented on this saying, that the glory of God is declared even in an infant, and so, quote, it doesn't wait till men arrive at the age of maturity, but even from the very dawn of infancy, it shines so brightly as is sufficient to refute the ungodly who deny him and extinguish his holy name. And so he's saying two things there. One, when we look at even our infant children, we see something inherently deeply valuable in them, even when the infant is not contributing anything to the world, but consuming everything. Right? Amen, parents, right? <laughs> what are they contributing, really? Uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> what are they consuming? I have a whole, whole list of what they're consuming, right? In a very revelatory way, the infant testifies to the glory of humanity that's displayed within their very being, not because of what they are capable of producing, not because of their product, but because of their being. And what's also fascinating about this is that there is, therefore, this glory of humanity that is displayed and maybe best displayed not in their ability to be independent, but in their dependence, utter dependence. The glory of a human being is not in their independence, but in their dependence, ultimately on God. Right? There's... There is nothing attractive about an infant who is independent from his parents. That's actually There's actually deep, something deeply wrong about that picture, right? And what Calvin is saying is, behold, your relationship to God. It's only beautiful if, if you are dependent on him, not if you're independent from him. The other thing he points out here is just the struggle that humanity also has against God's glory. They're enemies against God's glory. They're those who want to extinguish his glory. They, there are those who want to be like an infant without a parent. It leads to a tragic separation and declaration of independence. And the Bible says that the cause, the ultimate cause of this separation is sin. Uh, the Bible tells us from the very beginning in Genesis 1, Right? With these four words, in the beginning, God. Right? Meaning everything was made for God. Everything was made by God. And so the world was, was essentially God's stage where he kind of goes yo-yo ma on us and places us in the, in, the, in the audience to behold his glory and enjoy him forever. But sin enters the picture in Genesis 3. 
And what happens is humanity begins to make a desperate attempt to upstage God, right? And live their lives not for God's glory, but for self-glory. And this is what sin has always done. It's, that's what it's done to Lucifer and, and his fallen angels. It's what's done to Adam and Eve. It's, that's what sin is doing to us. Sin turns us into glory junkies for self-glory, not for the glory of God. Okay, that sounds a little abstract. What does this look like practically? Let me try to put more flesh on this. This means for one, right, as we seek our self-glory and make that our, our, our purpose in, in our existence, whether it's pursuing a career right now in our lives, getting married and having a family, working on our health, bodily appearance, all of these are done now for the sake of hallowing our own name, for the sake of displaying our own glory. It's to prove, prove that we are glorious enough. In everything we do, right, if you were to peel away the physical layer and look at what is the spiritual message underneath it all, it's essentially, come behold my glory. That's what's at the root of every sinful heart. Um, and we suffer the consequences of this. That's why I say, that's why I use the word junkie or an addict. This causes all kinds of distress in the day-to-day -day life, in the vocational context, in the relational context. It's when we get hooked on self-glory, that is when we become perfectionists and workaholics. We become much too anxious about the inglorious aspects of our lives. And we do our very best, whatever it takes, to cover it up. And we become utterly unforgiving towards ourselves for our past failures. Uh, we have, therefore, also a lot of trouble making future-oriented decisions because of that crippling fear about the past failures. What if this happens again? We become hyper-cautious about how well we maintain our glory. There's absolutely no room for mistakes. When our future decisions are guided by this compass of how the others will perceive me, whether I will be able to keep my glory intact, we'll find it extremely difficult to break out of our decision anxiety. When we're hardwired for beholding God's glory and then get hooked on self-glory, we go haywire. We malfunction. Self-glory also makes us go haywire relationally. Uh, when people are just a means to an end, right? the end which is self-approval, right? those relationships are bound to remain very shallow we're, because we're bound to surround ourselves with people who only affirm us and coddle us and say yes to us, right? never correcting, never rebuking, never challenging, never wounding. Uh, we become too proud to be confronted, too proud to be to let down our defenses, be vulnerable. We're too proud to grow. So you're surrounding yourself with people who don't contribute to your growth, who only help you keep the status quo. The biggest loss here is you'll never be fully seen and fully known for who you are, and therefore never fully loved. We go haywire as human beings when we pursue self-glory. There's distress in our thoughts. There's distress in our workplace. There's distress in our relationships. 
Why? Because you're not working hard enough? No. It's because you're going after your glory. You're going after your self-glory. What does this imply? That when we're crowned with glory and honor, as it says in the Psalms, and when we're properly reflecting his glory, we have dominion over all the rest. What does that imply? It means when we lose our pursuit of God's glory and pursue something else, we don't have dominion over those things. Those things have dominion over us. This is the struggle we have with the glory of God. David would say, you know, the problem is we're looking for glory in all the wrong places. And yet, because glory is still fundamental to our being, we're still going to go after it. The trouble is we're looking for it in all the wrong places. We're looking to propagate our self-glory. And it doesn't make us as God had intended us to be. It makes us less, less than. It dehumanizes us. Here's how C.S. Lewis, I think, sums this up in his essay, his brilliant essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, quote, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. Okay. According to Lewis, why is it so important for us to understand where our glory and honor are actually coming from and we're not tapping into creation for glory but creator for glory? Because when, when you let creation dictate what you worship, how you worship, that will dictate how you spend your lives and it will ultimately dictate whether you will live in joy or misery. And if you are hooked on these bad idols, the good gifts that God has given us that we've turned into things that we worship, you will become a heartbroken worshiper. A heartbroken worshiper. The only way we can live with joy, therefore, and become more and more human and actually experience joy in our worship as God intended us to, is if we behold God and his glory on his stage and we step down we step down from the stage and we sit in the audience where we belong. And I just want you to have a moment of realization right now. That's what you're doing right now in this moment. You're beholding the glory of God, the truth of God in the word of God. Right? You're not listening to John's personal opinions. and right? I'm not giving you some inspirational talk here. It's what scripture is saying. And you're beholding the goodness of God through it. And this is how we become rewired. It's, impor it's, it's important you identify what it is that you're actually worshiping. Remember what David Foster Wallace said, the, the atheist writer who said very insightfully, right, in the day-to-day -day trenches of life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only question is what? what you will worship. And, he says, choosing the wrong thing to worship will, will crush you. Worship money and things and you'll always, not have, always be in want, never have enough, and you'll be heartbroken by greed. Worship beauty, sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly and not worthy of love, you'll be heartbroken by lust. Worship people's approval and you'll always feel deficient, not enough, and you become a workaholic, working to please, not to serve. You will pursue something as excellent as excellence 
in order, not in order to serve others, but to be served by others. You turn even excellence into something ugly. But this is our struggle with glory. We malfunction when we go after self-glory. We malfunction when we struggle to worship God as God. So this leads us to the third point. Okay, how does God then rewire us for his glory so that we would behold his glory and enjoy him? Answer, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Remember when Jesus says, uh, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24? How all of scriptures, including the Psalms, testifies concerning him. Remember that? Well, he definitely meant that about Psalm 8. Uh, because later the author of Hebrews tells, tells us that one, the one who was truly made lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Turns out when David was saying these words, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him, he was not speaking of a human being, but the human being. The only human being truly crowned with glory and honor without compromise without losing an ounce of that glory, with, without a moment in his life that was dehumanizing, a true human being, crowned with glory and honor, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the author of Hebrews tells us, he says something interesting in Hebrews 2, verse 10, for it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, glorious, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay. Now, the author of Hebrews tells us here that the crowning of glory and honor for Jesus meant his suffering. Isn't that interesting? I thought if you're crowned with glory and honor, you're supposed to experience joy and wellness. Why would he experience suffering and eventually death if he was fully, truly crowned with glory and honor? He, it says here he was perfecting something. And what is that? Our salvation. Our salvation. His suffering and his death was itself an act of his grace, gloriously rescuing sinners who cannot save themselves. When we had lost total access to God's glory in our sinfulness, God's glory came to us through Jesus Christ. And this great exchange happens where the glorious life that Christ lived becomes ours and the inglorious life that we've lived becomes his on the cross. And there, that's why he had to suffer and die. The theologian David Van Druden put it like this, the Lord was indeed, quote, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being according to Hebrews 1.3. And the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. His appearance was not a detour from or alternative to the story of God's glory in the Old Testament cloud, but the organic fulfillment of that story. Of old, the cloud, how the came, cloud came to rest on the temple, Jesus was the true temple. John chapter 2, verse 19. He is God with us, Matthew 1.23. He is the dwelling of God's glory among men, John 1.14. The gospel, the good news is the radiance of God's glory, Christ, came to us when we couldn't come to him. And that's the glorious gospel of grace. 
this good news that is so thoroughly God-centered. In the beginning, it was God, and in the end, it was God. It is given to us by God. This salvation is given to us by God through his word alone. It's accomplished by Christ alone. It's received through the gift of faith alone, and it's started and finished by the grace of God alone. When we draw near to this gospel of grace and begin to, to behold it, sit in audience and, and, and worship before it and receive its call to worship, we begin to experience what, it's, what it means for a human being to be rewired for the glory of God. Now we're beholding something that God has done, only he could have done for the sake of saving sinners who've gone haywire for glory. And we experience the joy of worshiping him. And the joy of not having to be the one in control. The joy of not having to perfect ourselves through our own work and performance. The, the joy of not having to please everybody around us. The joy of simply being mindful of God's grace more than us being mindful of how well am I doing. You can sit in the audience of God's grace and behold his glory once again as a sinner because his glory now is displayed in his grace. I feel like God could have really gone one or the other way, right? Uh, one of my favorite actors, or I, I should say more entertaining actors that I like to watch is Liam Neeson. Uh, maybe two of my favorite movies would be the movie Taken and Schindler's List. So in the movie Taken, right, a bunch of evil people kidnap his daughter, and what does he do? I will find you, and I will kill you, right? And that's exactly what he does. He just unleashes wrath on those guys, right? Doesn't save a single one of them. He just, just right, destroys them, saves the daughter. What's, what's, what's my response to that, right? What a glorious story, right? What a glorious wrath. But in Schindler's List, you see a, a, a different kind of glory. Uh, there's a, it's based in World War II. It's, it's a true story. This German businessman who uh, uses his wealth, risks his life to shelter and protect uh, Jewish uh, people uh, during the Holocaust and saves uh, hundreds of them, right? All at the expense of his wealth and the risk of his life. Um, and then you, at the end of the movie, you see those living witnesses just, you know, um, telling their story, telling the story of Schindler. And what's your response to that, right? Because that's a glorious story of grace, right? God could have gotten glory either way. If he were to just, right, just go wrath on us, what do you think the angels would do? What a glorious story. You've, re, you've recaptured your glory. And yet he chose to tell a different story, the story of his glorious grace. So we get to be participants. The evil people who have kidnapped his glory get saved. By his grace. 
Are you mindful of this, guys? Are you mindful that, that the glory of God in your life now is his grace, your salvation through Jesus Christ, which began in God, began with God and will end with God. He who foreknew you and preordained you will be the one who sanctifies you and glorifies you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Are you mindful of that? Because it's to the degree that we're mindful of this that we will join in with the psalmist and say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, not mine, not my past performance, current performance, future career goals, but how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic is your grace in my life? How majestic is your grace in my marriage? How majestic is your grace in my parenting? I have all that I need in your grace. You can step into, therefore, right, all the earth with this, with this refrain. You can, you can step out into the world, right? You can step into work and step out of work. By faith, you can start work and stop work and go to bed at a reasonable time because your glory is not in your work anymore, but in the glorious grace of your Savior who's poured out his glory into your life. And you can be be sure of one thing. God cares intensely about his glory. And if he's deposited his glory into you, he will bring that glory into completion. It is our joy, it is for our benefit and our gain that God is all about the glory of God alone. Because he's made it his glorious agenda to save us. Save us to the uttermost. Please let this control your thoughts. Let it control the way you approach work, your studies, and let it control the time that you go to bed at night. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, your grace, your grace is amazing. The fact that you are mindful of us, we actually fill your mind. And in your mindfulness of us, there's no impatience, there's no short-temperedness, there's no bitter disappointment or cynicism, just grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. Grace that is greater than all of our failures. Grace that is able to carry us through to the finish line to behold your glory face to face. Help us to be mindful of this glorious grace. And Lord, teach us every day just how liberating it is to live under this grace, to behold the glory of your grace. And Lord, free us. Free us from our self-justifying self-proving, self-glory-addicted lives. Free us, Lord. And may we see even the, even the failures of the past, the distresses of the past, as a part of this glorious story of how you are redeeming us, how you're restoring us, how you're healing us, and you're making us new one day at a time. And from one degree to another, you are conforming us to the image of your glorious Son. So fill us, Lord, with hope, with renewed strength for today. And one day at a time, Lord, may we behold your glory and grow into, enter into 
that glory with all of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.